0: The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 15 through 16, and 19b through 31. It can be found on page 917 in the Black Bibles. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket."
1: And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The word of the Lord.
2: Thank you, Abby and Brett, for reading. Thank you, John, for singing. Good morning everyone, welcome. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Willis Weatherford. I'm the pastor to students here at Christ the King. So if you're in sixth through 12th grade or you have kids that are, I would love to talk with you, you know, with you afterward. Um, like Clay say, said afterwards, I am the coach of the blue team. I am recruiting free agents to my team. I don't understand what the problem is. If you wanna be on the winning team, just join my team. Like, it's, it's very simple. The two most famous people, I ever met were Bernie Sanders and Alex Bregman. Not at the same time. That would have been interesting. Uh, Different times. I met Bregman, you know, Astros player at Avalon Diner on I-10. And by meeting him, I mean, I saw him walk in and thought about getting an autograph, but decided to play it cool and not. So I didn't really meet him, but I saw him and it was awesome. Um, Bernie Sanders, I met him in an airport. And again, by meeting him, I mean... (laughs) We were walking in the same direction for a long time. It was, he would get on one of those like moving walkways and like kind of get ahead of me and then like he'd step off and I'd like kind of pass him. So we were like neck and neck for the whole airport basically. And I would watch just dozens of people, person after person, like do a double take and be like, is that Bernie? Like whisper to the front, is that Bernie over there? And then they'd like kind of, it is Bernie. And they'd like walk up to him and get a selfie with him. I didn't get a selfie again. I'm more of a play it cool kind of guy, so The thing that struck me though, seeing these famous people that I'd seen on TV, is they're just so different in real life. You know, on TV, they're in their element, they're doing their thing, and then in real life, they're just another guy trying to make a flight, trying to get breakfast. I'd seen the snapshots on TV, but real life was different. In our passage today, we finally meet Saul, aka Paul, you know, known in the rest of Acts as Paul Paul. He's this character who looms larger than life in the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. His inspired writings so clearly lay out the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And in this passage today, we spend three years with with Paul, with Saul. Three years in just 12 verses. So this passage is significant from a biographical perspective. But it's also very significant in terms of the flow of what's happening throughout the book of Acts. Remember, Acts is the story of how God forms his church by the Holy Spirit to take the gospel of Christ everywhere throughout the nations. But until this point in Acts, until this passage that we're reading today, the gospel's barely gotten out of the neighborhood. It's still in Judea and Samaria. It's within 100 miles Nine and a half chapters of Acts and the Gospels made it just 100 miles out of Jerusalem. It's like from here to College Station. And in the 12 verses we read today, it accelerates big time. It goes to Damascus and then to Tarsus, 360 miles away. It's like from here to New Orleans. And so we're supposed to notice, whoa, God's doing it. He's actually expanding his church. And today I want to focus on how. How that happens. How does God expand his kingdom? how this ragtag bunch of Jews in Jerusalem expand and grow and cross borders and become an international global movement with incredible staying power? And the kingdom is still expanding. The gospel is still going forth. All of us are still called to take the gospel to places where it hasn't been. All of us have a part to play. So how does God's kingdom actually expand? How does that work? It expands through three things, risky repentance, dogged declaration, and shared suffering. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word in which you have revealed to us your heart for us, your heart for the world. And so we ask, Jesus, that you would draw us close to your heart in this time, that you would open our ears and humble our hearts to hear and to be changed. We want you to change us, Holy Spirit, through this. So we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, risky repentance, dogged declaration, and shared suffering. That's how the kingdom expands. Let's start with risky repentance. So again, verse 19b. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? So Saul's converted, which John preached about last week, just the amazing grace of God to him to convert even him. And as soon as he gets his eyesight back from that conversion experience, he starts preaching the gospel. And the people who hear him, their reaction, totally understandable. They say, hasn't he come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Answer, yes. That's exactly why Saul was going to Damascus in the first place was to tie up Christians and take them back to Jerusalem so that they would be be prosecuted by the Jews. So this surprise they feel at Saul is indicative of the risky nature of his repentance. So here's a list of things Saul risked by becoming a Christian, by repenting. First, he risked his job. When Saul repented and turned to Christ, he risked and lost his job. His job was to hunt Christians. That's why he had been sent to Damascus by the Jewish leaders. And so in the moment he became a Christian, he also became unemployed. Those of you who have lost the job recently, you know how scary that is, how risky that feels. He also risked and probably lost all of his friends. Saul was from Tarsus, again, 360 miles away. So he's not in like a hometown community with a bunch of people that know him. His whole friend group was probably in Jerusalem, other Jews and Pharisees like him. And it's kind of hard to imagine any of them wanting to hang out with him and be with him after he betrayed them, their religion, their lifestyle. So he risked and probably lost his friends. But Saul risked and also uh, lost his reputation. If you think about it, his, um, his reputation with the Jews as a passionate persecutor of Christians, this theological powerhouse, it won him favor with the Jews. But as soon as he became a Christian, his reputation was in the gutter. It was just as low as it could possibly be. That had to have been scary for him. But not as scary as the final risk Saul's repentance carried, which was the risk, the very real risk of losing his life. He's almost killed twice in this passage. And as we're going to look a little bit more at that later in this passage, the risk kind of continues throughout his life. His repentance was very risky. And ultimately, it left him with virtually nothing. No job, no friends, no reputation, hunted to be killed. Why would he do it? Why would anyone do this? And how does it fit into God's international expansion plan for his kingdom? I think a good picture um, of the answer to these questions is found in the juniper tree. As you might know from the fact that I named my daughter juniper, I'm a big fan of the tree. Uh, I know a lot about them. Turns out uh, the juniper tree is found all over the world. Here in Texas, we have the ash juniper. Uh, Saul would have been familiar with the Phoenician juniper. Growing up in Kentucky, I had a row of eastern junipers along the fence line in the back pasture. And um, the thing about junipers is their root system, it's not very deep. They don't have like a deep tap root that makes them really strong. It's more fibrous and shallow and kind of wide. And so uh, they're really easy to pull up. If you wanna get rid of one, you just throw a chain around it with a truck or a tractor and just, you can jerk them right out very easily, not like an oak tree or anything. The other thing about them is that basically any juniper tree can grow on a sheer wall of rock. They can grow, grow on a cliff face. So you see them all the time rock climbing, and when a juniper, when it, um, when it grows on a, a cliff or um, on like a little ledge or a little crack on a cliff, they become super, super strong. If you take away all the dirt, most of the water, half the sunshine, and put it on the side of a cliff, grabbing onto one is like grabbing onto a post of iron set in concrete. They're immovable. You can hang a truck off them. And they even live longer. They live longer than normal trees because they're rooted in the solid rock. So why would all risk everything? How does risky repentance fit into God's expansion plan? In repentance, we pull our roots, the roots that we use to find security and find satisfaction, we pull them out of all the other things like reputation, safety, success, excellence, friendships, our jobs, And instead, we cling on to Jesus. And Jesus is rock solid. No danger scares him. No surprise surprises Jesus. Disaster does not threaten his kingdom. And here's the great news. You can live your life in his kingdom. The road in is called repentance. It's a risky road. Walking in, walking it means scraping off every idol, and security blanket and the things that make you feel strong one by one and dropping them on the side of the road. But the sun of glory shines on your face every step of the way. He walks beside you and promises that one day you're gonna be able to say with Paul, I count it all as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord. So take a risk and repent. It'll cost you something, It might cost you everything, but you'll be left with Jesus, and he's worth it. So Saul repented of persecuting Christians. Who might you be persecuting? Who are you bullying or belittling to secure your own status? Who do you gossip about behind their back? Who do you ignore? Which people that God has called you to help do you turn a blind eye to? Saul risked his reputation, job, friendships, his very life. What are you going to risk for Jesus? Students, I know how common cheating is in your schools, how tempting it is when the pressure can be so high. For you, refusing to cheat, just refusing, and maybe even getting a lower GPA, maybe not getting into the school you want, that might be a risky repentance for you. There is nothing too valuable to turn away from when Jesus is what we're turning to. The most joyful people in the world are those who have given up the most for Jesus. So repent boldly, recklessly. Every sin in your life is a chance for you to win more of the joy that your savior offers to you. So brothers and sisters, we can be risky repenters because Jesus holds us safe. He's never gonna reject his children. And look what God did through one man named Saul who risked everything, who turned his back on everything for Jesus. Imagine what God would do through all of us. His kingdom would rise like a healing tide and flow through our neighborhoods and our schools and our workplaces because risky repentance is part of God's kingdom expansion plan. The second part of that plan is the dogged declaration of the gospel. Dogged declaration, Saul doggedly declared the gospel starting at his conversion. You can kind of see it running all the way through our passage. Verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 28, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed amongst the Hellenists. Hellenist means Greek-speaking Jews, for those of you who are curious. Saul became a man of one message. He sticks doggedly to preaching and proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Pretty much the only things he does in this passage are, one, preach the gospel, and two, run for his life. That's about it. He's obsessed with telling people about Jesus, and they tried to kill him for it. He preaches Christ in Damascus, they try to kill him, he escapes. Preaches Christ in Jerusalem, they try to kill it, kill him, he escapes. And we know from the later writings that next he goes to Tarsus and Antioch and all around the ancient world, despite being beaten, jailed, shipwrecked, you name it, he continues preaching Christ. That's his one goal. Companies spend thousands of dollars hiring consultants to come up with a new brand name or, um, you know, a catchy tagline, a new mission statement, it's important. Here's a few of them. Let's start with Coca-Cola. Refresh the world, make a difference. A little general for my taste, but okay. Uh, Tesla, to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. Southwest, to become the world's most loved, most efficient, and most profitable airline. It's refreshingly honest, they include prophet in there. I like that. Paul's mission statement was, preach Christ to those who don't know him. The message of Christianity isn't social progress or healthy families or cultural transformation or even morality. As good as all those things are, the message of Christianity is Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, the so-called Prince of Preachers, said, I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus Christ than unravel all the mysteries of the divine word, for salvation is the one thing we are to live for. But in Houston, we have 37 megachurches. We have hundreds, maybe thousands, of ordained preachers whose job it is to preach the word. It might feel like the preaching is pretty much covered, you know? We have this whole professional class of preachers and preaching. Any lost person who wants to hear the gospel can just come to a church. But actually, that's backwards, totally backwards. Of course, we want people to come to churches, but the church is fundamentally a mobile unit. We, the church, have been called by God to go out, to go out to the lost, to go find them where they are, wherever they are, and especially in our own neighborhoods and workplaces and schools and softball teams. Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. But for most of us, that's really scary in a couple different ways. One of the ways the gospel, one of the reasons the gospel is so scary is because it challenges so much that we and our culture hold dear. Instead of creating your own identity through personal expression, Jesus gives you a new identity as a child of God. And that means living authentically, means not discovering your identity for yourself, but taking up and surrendering to the identity he has for you. Rather than achieving moral status by following rules and leading socially accepted progress, Jesus just gives us his own righteousness for free. And oh, by the way, believing that will make you part of a religion that's accused of being socially repressive. We work hard to earn success and security, and Jesus tells us the currency of his economy is not hard work and earning stuff, but undeserved grace. He says, strength is weakness, weakness is strength. The first will be last and the last will be first. He tells the rich young ruler to sell everything he has and give it to the poor. I think really this might be the hardest possible religion to spread in Houston. This gospel might not actually sound like good news to the people here. The fact that this room is pretty full is already kind of a miracle, so I'm glad you're here. More and more people around the country, more and more Christians, are starting to experience the kind of persecution, hints of the kinds of persecution, that the early church faced. It's mainly ideological and intellectual, but it has far-reaching social consequences. Christianity doesn't have free reign in America or in Houston. It's under pressure. But guess what? God's kingdom expands under pressure. Look at this. So from Acts 8, chapter right before our passage, it says God's kingdom expands under pressure. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. God expands his kingdom through the dogged, non-professional amateur, persistent, ordinary communication of the gospel by people under pressure like you. So don't let another year go by without sharing the gospel with someone in your life. Go home and pray and think, and write down one name of somebody that you're close to that doesn't know Jesus. Pray for them, and ask some friends of yours to pray for them as well. And then get a piece of paper or your laptop or your phone, and write down, even just half a page, the story of what God has done in your life, how he saved you in ways you couldn't save yourself, what that's meant in your life, and then tell that person that story. It may feel like you know your story's not exciting or whatever, but when we look at Paul's preaching, a lot of the parts of his story disqualified him, humanly speaking, from sharing the gospel. And yet, over and over, he included his story of salvation, his story with Jesus, in his gospel presentation, we can do the same. That brave but simple act may just seem like a little drop in the bucket, but that drop in the bucket will throw open the floodgates of grace in that person's life because it's not about us and how well we share the gospel, it's about the Holy Spirit and how he uses the gospel in people's lives. It's part of his aggressive expansion plan. And there's one more part of the plan, okay? Shared suffering. As people hear the gospel and believe it, they come alongside one another in the midst of suffering. And frankly, if they hadn't done that, the early church might not have survived. We can see this in our passage in two ways. First, both times Saul's life is threatened and he's in hiding, fearing for his life, suffering. Other Christians stick their necks out to keep him safe and help him escape. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And then again, verse 29, And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. If the Christians in Damascus or Jerusalem had just let him fend for himself, if they just kind of said, you know, it's kind of his own fault, like being all public about his ministry, like, Tone it down a little bit, Saul. But they didn't do that. If they had, he probably would have been killed. They didn't do that. Instead, they noticed Saul's predicament. They saw the danger he was in, and they decided his problem is our problem. His suffering is gonna be our suffering. And so he lived to preach another day. The kingdom expands through shared suffering. And another way we see this is with Barnabas. So we know from other parts of Acts that Barnabas has been with the church a while, Uh, He's a man of means and influence, kind of an impressive and compelling figure. And so when he sees Saul come into town, he notices Saul comes into town and he tries to join the church. And the Christians, they're just not going to touch him with a 10-foot pole. They're like, no way. This guy basically arranged the murder of our best friend, Stephen. We're not going to believe what he says no matter what he says. And so Barnabas sees that and he risks his own reputation to advocate for him. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. It may seem like a small thing to do, but in doing this, Barnabas secured Paul's acceptance by the apostles and the church in Jerusalem, enabling his ministry and literary ministry for the rest of his life. This shared suffering is so core and fundamental to the life of the church because it's a core part of the life of Jesus. Jesus came to share our sufferings. Isaiah 53 says, "'Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows.'" One of the ways we experience this ministry of Christ in our own lives is by sharing suffering as a body with one another. Galatians 6 commands us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ some of the most beautiful ways that I've seen this lived out have been here at Christ the King. We, the people in this room, could share dozens of stories of intense, world-altering, scary suffering that we've experienced. And not perfectly, but often, we've come alongside one another. We've come alongside people in our neighborhoods and shared that suffering, shared that burden with them. So drawing from the experience of this church and the passage at hand, just three ways to share suffering well. The first way to share suffering well is to let Jesus be Jesus. There's only one person who can end all suffering, solve every problem, answer every question, wipe away every tear. His name is Jesus, we're not him. One of the beautiful things about believing in Jesus is not feeling like you have to be him, like you have to solve every problem. One of the reasons we shy away from people who are suffering and maybe don't engage them or talk to them or invite them over is because we know we can't fix their problem. We know we can't do that. But you know what? Nine times out of ten, that person also knows you can't fix their problem. And they don't really want you to. They just want you to come alongside them, help them feel like they're not alone, you know. Let them feel the touch of your hand and hear, I'm sorry for what you're going through. I may not understand it, but I know it's hard. And I'm with you. I care about you. Another thing they might want to hear, though, is I'm dropping off dinner on Tuesday, right? Nothing says love like Lupe. Or if you can cook, do that. Or a car ride, mowing their lawn, picking up their kids from school. Sometimes we hesitate to offer just tangible help because it seems so small in comparison to what they're going through, which it is. It is small. But one time when Jesus saw thousands of sick weak, lost, politically marginalized people, he decided to give them a meal. That's all he did. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. The final way to share suffering has to do with you the next time you're experiencing it. The next time you experience suffering, if you're like me, you'll have a bunch of reasons to not tell anyone. You need to seem strong. You want to seem like you can handle the hard things in your life. It seems good to maybe be kind of able to handle it on your own. Your issue may be depressing or embarrassing. You don't like making people wow, well, you don't like making people feel sad. You don't want to be seen as a complainer. Did you know that this hesitancy we feel, the hesitancy we feel to invite someone else into our suffering is actually just directly opposed to God's grace in our lives? God's grace isn't meant to make us so strong that we can handle all of our own suffering without asking for help. Actually, it's meant to make us brave enough to admit our hurt and ask for help. Ask the people God is gracious enough to put in our lives for that purpose. So the next, things, the next time you realize, hey, I don't think I'm doing too well with this, allow someone to share that suffering with you. It'd be nice if they notice on their own, but even if they don't, take that out and share that with someone else. Tell them what you're going through how you're doing so that you might experience the grace of God to you through them and the expansion of his kingdom in your own heart. So God's kingdom expansion plans are these, risky repentance, dogged declaration, and shared suffering. Three things not typically found in a business expansion plan, right? I think the amazing thing about this plan is that it actually worked. It actually worked. The kingdom expanded. The concluding verse of this passage sums up the result of everything we read today. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What a beautiful hope. We can expect the church to have peace, to be built up firmly on the foundation of Jesus, to walk in the fear of our great God who expands his kingdom in very unexpected ways. And we can experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit as we watch his church multiply around us he will do it as we depend on jesus in risky repentance dogged declaration and shared suffering let's pray father god we do thank you and praise you for your word we ask father that you would shape us your church as a mobile unit going out into our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools that we would be obedient to you in this call we ask Holy Spirit, that you would give us the comfort of Jesus, which we need so desperately. And in this, change our hearts, making us look more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.